Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Claire Mutimer. And I'm Susie Coulson. Welcome to Backstory Mashups. Three shorter stories, some old, some new, but with a common theme running throughout. Mashups. Yes, it's a thing. And we're going with that. Yeah. Before we start, a quick apology from me about the sound quality on our first backstory. I did the interview over the phone and the sound's never so good. And also I managed to balls things up a little bit. So I'm sorry and I hope it doesn't spoil things. On we go. Okay, Claire, here we are again. Diet Coke in hand, ready for a new theme. And your Um, window cleaner's just turned up as well. So we've got a Diet Coke moment. (laughs) (laughs) Easy tiger. Um, Okay, and this week we're talking about... Okay, we're talking about transformation. So many of the stories that we've had have been about, you know, life taking an unexpected turn. So that might be something sudden or something gradual that happens over time. We're starting this week, as always, with a new backstory. This week we hear from Mark, who found out he had HIV in 1986 when he was just 17 years old. Getting the diagnosis was obviously a huge thing in his life, but how HIV is now is very different from how it was in the 80s. It's really been through a transformation in terms of the kind of treatments that are available. Yeah, there's lots going on. We're old enough to remember the tombstone adverts of the 80s. Oh, we certainly are. And in fact, Mark got his diagnosis the year before those ads came out. Uh, Those early campaigns, they were shocking, weren't they? I think maybe deliberately shocking. They certainly scared the living bejesus out of me. But someone with HIV now will have a very different experience because the advances in treatment are really quite astonishing. So here's Mark to tell us about the then and the now of living with HIV. Um, So I was diagnosed HIV positive in November 1986 when I was 17 years of age. Wow. God, so so long ago. That was in the the really early days when there was so much that we didn't yet know. I mean, the epidemic had started in San Francisco and New York and parts of Africa before that, but it really started to hit the UK. What made you get tested? Um, my partner at the time just suggested that I do it. It was a, a brand new thing that was available. I didn't think that I would get a positive result. I didn't think that I'd necessarily knew much about um, HIV or put myself at risk. 
Um, so I just went along for a test. Tell me what it was like when you found out, when you got your diagnosis. Um, I was shocked because, as I said, I didn't expect a positive diagnosis. I was scared. I was frightened. Um, and I expected to get really ill at some point and to die. Being 17, my whole world caved in at that moment. And I just didn't see a future for myself. Who did you tell? Were you able to tell anyone at that stage? I mean, I was really lucky and I do count myself incredibly fortunate that I was able to have a conversation with my family pretty soon after my diagnosis, who were incredibly supportive. I mean, very, very scared for me and really worried. And we did keep it a family secret for a while. But I was able to tell my mum, who stood by me throughout and a few close friends as well. So in those early days, you you were told that you had HIV, but presumably you didn't know how things were going to work out, did you? There was a lot of uncertainty at the time. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Nobody knew what was going to happen. I mean, we knew that the virus could take hold and damage your immune system and leave you open to a whole range of unusual and weird opportunistic infections. So I did spend a lot of time going back to the clinic every couple of months to get myself checked out. There was very little that we could do around checking people's blood at the time. So any kind of cough or cold or mark that appeared on my body um, left me in a bit of a tailspin. For a while, I wasn't ill at all, but I did suffer from uh, continuous night sweats. I would get the flu regularly. I would suffer from things like thrush um, and fatigue. But I was, again, as I said, you know, quite lucky that I didn't develop any AIDS-defining illnesses at that time. But it had an impact on my emotional, my, my emotional well-being and my mental health, which was quite significant. Did you, did you know other people who had HIV? Did you get kind of support from within a community? Yeah, I mean, one of the first things I did when I got my diagnosis was to call a helpline called Body Positive, which was then um, run by other positive people. And they, they, gave, they gave me the reassurance that they could. And after a little while of kind of managing on my own with my family, I started to seek support from local support services in my, in my area in London. And I would go along to, say, lunch and clubs or get a complimentary therapy, um, maybe talk to a counsellor in what were really, really safe spaces for people who were living with HIV or were, you know, were about to die from an AIDS diagnosis. So... I found a community of support quite early on. What was slightly challenging for me was that I was a young person and I wasn't unwell. And a lot of people were either older than me and unwell. So I kind of sat in this really weird space for, for a time. But what really benefited myself was to turn it around and start volunteering and providing support to other people that were in the same situation to myself. It's that kind of basic need that we have to do something, isn't it? That basic need to, I suppose, take back a bit of control by doing something positive about something. Doing that work um, really opened my eyes to what it meant to get a HIV diagnosis and to live with HIV in the 21st century post-treatment. And so I have and continue to come into contact with people who are newly diagnosed. Fortunately, those numbers are dropping because we're seeing less people get diagnosed positive, which is really good news. Tell me what you see now, now that the the prognosis is so very different. I mean, what, what I've seen has really changed rapidly in the past four to five years and four or five years ago I would meet people who were newly diagnosed who would still think 
um, that their HIV meant a death sentence. Um, their their knowledge was really out of date, and and that has shifted. So when I do meet recently diagnosed people now, they get that they're not going to die. They understand that HIV is a manageable long-term condition and they with medication that they'll live a long and healthy life and they won't pass the virus on what hasn't changed is stigma and the impact that that diagnosis has on the individual in terms of their place in the world and what they think other people will think of them and also the messages that they've internalized so for many many years hiv has been stigmatized as something that happens to people who are promiscuous who are dirty um, who do acts which are away from the norm of other people and people who get diagnosed take that on board so they think right um, other people are going to think that I'm promiscuous or I've taken too many risks or I did something which was really wrong I think people are also concerned about the impact it will have on their family so not just that they might be rejected by their family but if you're a if you're a mother and you have children how do you tell your children that you've got HIV and um, how do you tell your partners how do you tell your employer because there are still people who will lose, who are fearful that they may lose their jobs or their housing or their income as a result of a positive diagnosis. I think it's important to add that those things just aren't perceptions. These things do happen to people. We do know that there are still incredibly low levels of knowledge about HIV in this country. We did a study at THT which said that you know there's a significant number of the population who wouldn't kiss or drink from the same cup as somebody who is living with HIV. And this is in spite of a lot of education that's gone to change that. So stigma re remains the biggest issue that people who are diagnosed face. And all of that presumably can be kind of internalised by people, can't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we do see that there are disproportionate rates of poor mental health in people who are living with HIV across the board. So, yeah, I mean, a positive diagnosis can and does have an impact on people who are diagnosed. The, the science and the news started to come through and to be confirmed that as a positive person on treatment, I can't pass the virus on. That was the most liberating, enlightening thing that ever happened to me as a positive man. Because for many, many years, you walk around feeling that you're infectious. It has an impact on the intimate relationships that you have with people. Um, so for me personally, just having that knowledge lifted all of that I do think it's really important to remember though that, that that access to treatment isn't uniform. We've done a really, really great job in the UK where we have you know, nearly 97% of people who are diagnosed with HIV on treatment undetectable and that's amazing. I think that globally though, we need to address that issue because if we look at parts of, um, in Africa they've done an amazing job in getting people on treatment, but we have an emerging epidemic in, in Eastern Europe where people don't have access to treatment in the same way, where HIV is continually and continue to be highly stigmatised. So if we're looking at a global response around how we end HIV, then treatment needs to be available for everybody. Bit of a cheesy question, but if you could talk to 17-year-old Mark, what would you say? I would say to 17-year-old Mark, who just got his diagnosis, you're going to be fine. It's absolutely going to be okay. It's going to be rocky. 
it's going to be challenging, but that is what life is about. You will find love, you will find happiness, and you will find great work. I have traveled the world, I have met incredible activists and survivors, I have developed amazing pieces of work which have prevented other people getting HIV, and I've done work to support other people to achieve their best potential in spite of the virus. So I say to him, not only are you going to be fine, but you're going to do good things because of this. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's such a relatively short space of time, and yet things have changed so much. And as Mark says, access to treatment in the UK is one thing, but there are still huge issues with making treatments available in other parts of the world, aren't there? I know. I think that's a real issue, isn't it? Our next contributor is Adele, who we heard from in Season 6, Episode 8. Adele suffered an acid attack in August 2014. The attack was arranged by her ex-partner, Anthony, but carried out by someone else acting on his behalf. It followed a long and abusive relationship in which Anthony had made numerous threats against Adele and her family, as well as physically attacking her. Here's Adele. There was this guy, a black tracksuit. He had like a balaclava covering his mouth and he was shaking a bottle and he was just lightly jogging past me but as he passed me I remember feeling wary so I remember going in towards the bus stop he looked me in the eyes and I just just felt really wary of him and I'd say about five minutes later don't know why until this till this day I still don't know what made me move but as I moved my head to the side acid got chucked over me And obviously at first I thought it was just water and I thought, what the hell, why has he just chucked water over me? And then within seconds it was burning, um, 
just burning. So I remember just chucking my bag, my phone, and then ran to these two people that was waiting. And I grabbed hold of one one lady's hand and was like, please bring an ambulance. I just felt like I was melting. At that point, it was probably about half eight. And... It was busy, everyone was going to work. So I was playing, I remember playing chicken in the road, just running in and out, and there, there was cars bibbing, and then, like, eventually people knew that something was up, so, like, they, then the cars started stopping. So then I was crying for water, and someone come out of their house with a jug of water, chucked it over me, and it just, like, burnt even more. Like, it just yeah. smoked, like... I was just then I just started off so I remember getting up and just running and everyone was just like running away from me because I was just like acid was going everywhere because I was just covered in it. So when this happened and you realised that it was acid did you have any sense of do you... I knew it was Anthony. Did I you? knew yeah. Straight away. Straight away that was here. I knew it obviously weren't him that done it but he was involved and I knew that that was him. Um, took the police nine months to get my attacker and that was basically through a tip-off really no, no, so they everyone, didn't no but everyone went quiet everyone, no one would speak no one would speak they were scared of him no one would speak um they were scared of the guy that they were scared of anthony, anthony had such a hold right. that no one was speaking no one okay but they finally got the guy that yeah, actually did it yeah. and what do you know about him uh he was a vulnerable person um he'd okay. never been involved in the police before so he was easily manipulated. Yeah. Um, his mum was disabled and he's basically been a, been a carer from a young age. A vulnerable person that Anthony used, yeah. So, oh my God, okay. So then we go forward to the trial. Yeah. I don't know if it's my imagination, but I feel like acid attacks have become more common. Oh, yeah. Do you think that there's something about that way of attacking someone that it is... It's an instant... It's an instant... Um, disfigurement and it's a major disfigurement and it's not just you know with a stab or you know I, I got stabbed so I know how a stab feel but um you know what you have stitches and everything like that and that is kind of basically how it is where acid is just an instant dramatic life change and you know and it's worse I, I hadn't died but it's just so you have to live everything, you know. Sometimes I was in my hospital bed thinking that it would have been easy to just to die because I've got to go through all this, you know, all the trauma. And it wasn't just me. It was, I was watching my family, you know. Yeah. It was a domino effect. It was, you know, I've never seen my dad cry before. I've never seen my brothers cry, you know. Because there wasn't much evidence on Anthony, he was very smart. There was no, you know, text messages. It was very verbal and he was very smart on the evidence front. Jason Harrison become my queen's evidence. So basically stood up saying, I done it. But the reasons I done it was against Anthony. So for him helping me out, um, he got 10 years taken off. So then he got four years. Due what to, do you think, think about that? Um, I, it angered me. But my main person was Anthony. So okay. even though he was the one that, He's the one that scarred me, you know. I hadn't got half head hair, I hadn't got an ear. You know, I'm scarred for life because of him. Anthony didn't actually do it. So then that angers me when I think about it like that. Mm. But Anthony was the main one. Anthony himself, did he plead guilty or not guilty? No. I knew he'd take me to trial. He, he went not guilty. To he took me to trial. He he would do... I knew that. That last little bit of yeah, control. And he was found guilty. Yeah, he was found guilty. Good. Yeah. And he got 14 years 
life minimum of 14. Life, so that means he'll be inside definitely for 14 years. Yeah. And then after that, he can He can apply, apply. to come out, but then once he's out, he's got a life licence. So okay. whether he does a little steal something from the shop or something, that can potentially send him back. Yeah. Okay. And he'll never be allowed to nip, like, around here. How are you now? Yeah, I'm okay. Um, I was 22, so I still had a life to live. And You're so I, young. Yeah, so I had, um, I had to, I had to find a way to, to you know, get over it, or you know, get. I had, I had a life to live. You know, I, I just live life to the full way. And what are you like now as a person? How, how would you say this has changed you? For me, I've won against him, like mm. despite anything. So mm. I kind of, I don't really live on edge anymore. Yeah, this story is still fresh in our minds as we featured it not long ago. She's incredibly resilient, isn't she? Yeah, she is. She's tough. And it's had such a huge impact on her life. But in many ways, I think perhaps it's made her stronger. It's a bit of a cliche, I know. But, you know, sometimes when the shit hits the fan, we really find out what we're made of. Following a similar theme, we move on to our final backstory. This one is from two brothers, Michael and Robert, who we heard from way back in July last year. Season 4, episode 4. Michael was punched in the jaw seven years ago when he was on a night out. His younger brother Robert has been a huge part of his support in enabling him to learn how to live again with what turned out to be a major brain surgery. It's a double transformation. Not only did Michael's life change in an instant, but also their dynamic in the family changed. Like so many of these stories, the ripple effect goes on and on. Here's Michael and Robert. They went out on a night out, and from as far as I know, when they were walking back, he got assaulted because he has a metal plate in his leg. The impact of the punch forced him onto his bad leg, which then he had no balance on, so he fell over and hit his head on a curb, which pushed his skull into his brain and caused a major brain bleed. He was, I think he died a few times in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, and then again from James Paget to Addenbrooke's. Um, they put him in an induced coma to s- stabilise him. Every time they woke him up, um, the pressure was too much in his brain. And um, and so what was the first thing that you heard about it? I actually was, I was here, I came home here and the police officer was here. And I, I kind of thought, I thought it was for me originally. Because uh, I used to be quite a naughty child. And um, I came in and then obviously they was talking. And Dad took me to a side and he was like, look, your brother's been assaulted, he's... He's been taken to James Paget. It's quite serious. We we need to go. So I called my friend up and they uh, sat with my friend all night. Didn't get any sleep. Just waiting to hear what happened. No one no one really told me what as what exactly happened, like the first day or so. And then obviously when they knew more, they then told me. Wow. And so so how long after that did you go and see him? Uh, I didn't see him for. I, I think it was about two weeks. I didn't go and see him because um, his state, they wasn't sure what was going to happen. They wasn't sure if he was going to even pull through it or um, it was just so up and down. They couldn't tell what was going to happen. They they couldn't stabilise him at first. So my mum and dad said it was best if I stay away for now until they they got a grip on the situation and knew what they was going to do. Did you want to go? Yeah, I did, yeah. Of course you do, it's your family. Like You want to be by your family in their time of need, don't you? Definitely. I remember the first time walking into the room when he was still in a coma, I walked straight past him, I didn't recognise him. His tongue 
was enormous. It was swollen out of his face, out of his mm. mouth. His face was all, all swollen and disportioned. It was really strange. Um, my sister had to pull me back and say, like, you've just walked past him. Like, I had no idea. I broke down. So. <laughs> and so how did that progress? Like, how long were you in hospital for? Um, well, I know I went in in November and I come out the end of January. But I was acting like um, like a, a kid. I couldn't really talk, walk. I'd lost loads of weight. And it's made my whole family and my brother and all that struggle to try to help me. Yeah, I bet. Uh, it, was, it was very strange because I went from being a little brother to suddenly being the big brother, in a sense. He was a child when he woke up. Even when he first came home, he was still a child. It's taken... He's come so far in in his progression um it was very strange i had to move out when he came home because uh he was quite aggressive towards me when we first came home that oh, really? uh, no one ever really said a reason for it but if if he had a headache or something because it's magnif it was magnified the pain was so bad for him he'd just snap at me and get up and go for me and throw things at me so i moved out to try and make the situation easier and that was that was kind of my time to stand up and grow up and do the right thing for Mike. Right. So I, I, we changed roles, basically. He was then the younger brother, and I had to be the older brother. That must have been really difficult, yeah. It was It was a little bit tough, yeah. It definitely helped. It brought us closer as well, because he, he was able to have that time to himself. And then when I did see him, I'd come round for dinner every now and again, and we'd have a laugh. And so do you remember that time? I, rem I remember little bits of that time, but not full. But... Where he was just saying, so like I was the big brother and he was my little brother, and for what he done, I'm now still, even though I'm older than him, I'm still treating him as my older brother. So I'm grown up to be like him. It's that reversing around. So, and I think that the whole lot of it has brought the whole family closer together than what was ever was. Um, and so, like, what happened to the guy? Like, did, you know, did you did he get done for this? Well, his name was Daniel Pozowski. He was a Polish kickboxer from Great Yarmouth. Um, he had just finished his, um, I don't know what it's called when you come up, his licence. He had just finished his licence from a previous assault. Oh, wow. When he got taken to court, he got three years due 16 months and he was then released again on licence and I think a month or two into his licence, he um, done something wrong, which then left him getting deported. Yeah. So he has been deported to he Poland? Got, he, he got deported, yeah. And how has your mum coped with all of this? I ripped her to pieces when it happened, like it would with any mother. And it was awful sitting here watching her just falling apart almost because we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, it was heartbreaking and I would I would never wish that upon anybody, not even my worst enemy. That That was probably one of the hardest things about it was just seeing my mum crumble. But she stick, she kept it together for all of us and she, she was the real, the rock, if you will, like that kept everybody together and kept everybody's hopes up, even though behind closed doors you could you could see what was happening. Oh, that's amazing. And has she, like, played a big part in, like, Michael's recovery kind of thing? Or? Oh, yeah. She, she, to be honest, she's the only person that really knows how to handle him. When he's, ha like you said, when he ha has his down days, he can still be a little bit aggressive um, with certain things, of like, getting his own way. She's the only person who really understands, like, and knows what to do, what to say. Because sometimes we do, like, if he's having a down day, we have to be careful what we say, and, like, you are treading on eggshells a little bit. Whereas 
my mum can say anything and it's it's fine because he knows us mum. And so do you feel very protective of Michael now? I find myself, when, when I go to the pub, I'll meet Michael in the pub sometimes, I just, I find myself all the time just kind of watching out for him. When someone's talking to him, like, I, I don't make it as in a, as I'm like protecting him, but I'll always ask him, oh, who's that you're talking to? Or do you know them people over there? I, I don't know why, it's just, I, I guess it's just um, because what happened, I don't want anything like that to ever happen again. So I do find myself in a little bit protective, yeah. I also wanted to ask you, because you mentioned how you had been a bit of a bad boy, you thought the police were for you when you came back. <laughs> did that change, like, with, you know, as a result of this um, happening, or did that was that just you growing up? No. I, I think I touched on it earlier on. I said about how much one punch could change someone's life, and I never really realised that before. Well, that kind of shook my world, because... I, I did used to I did used to have like pay fights with my friends. I, I was quite into boxing, and that 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 really changed everything for me because I used to think well you could punch someone they'd just they'll get a bruise and they'll be fine or something like that. Well, obviously not. It's, it's a it can impact people's lives and it's not just Mike. It's happened to it's happened to a lot of people. You hear stories about it more and more now. One p- p- person gets punched once in a pub or pushed over and they've hit their head. It it can change people's lives and. I don't think people people need to realise how much damage one punch can cause. I really remember that story, Claire, and I remember being interested in how Michael and Robert's roles had changed, with Robert really taking over the role of what we would think of as the older brother. Yeah, I suppose roles are always changing, aren't they? Sometimes it happens suddenly. Certainly when my brother was killed, I went obviously from being a kind of sister to um, being an only child. Yeah. And that was quite a big change in role. A very sudden change, yeah. And I guess sometimes these things can happen quite gradually. Okay, on to something that changes every time, our podcast recommendation of the week. Claire, what have you been listening to? Okay, so my recommendation is um, one from the podcast The Modern Man um, with Ollie Mann. So that's okay. man, no, no. <laughs> two nurse and it was from may the 1st 2019 and the episode is called pupil a i haven't Um, heard anything about this one okay so sort of vague area the modern man is is quite a long podcast it's like over an hour i would say Mm -hmm. and they have a feature on it and this just really caught my eye this feature so i i'm not so keen on the other features of the actual podcast right i mean but this particular episode you like but this particular part of this particular episode which is the main feature I I found very fascinating. Um, it's probably quite a sort of backstory story okay. in that um, it's about a teacher and a pupil. Um, okay. let's Can we draw say, you on any more than that? Uh, relationships, boundaries. Okay. All right, okay. All um, right, don't give too much away. Yeah, yeah. okay, that sounds... Um, so yeah, I think it's about a third of the way in that there's this feature and it's, um, it's really worth listening to. It's a very compelling and incredibly honest, brutal story. So, okay, yeah. all right, fantastic. We'll stick a link on on that i say honest and brutal i mean brutally honest not brutal yeah okay all right good to, Just to clear that up yeah <laughs> <laughs> we'll put a link in the show notes to that that's all for now thank you so much for listening we haven't said this for a while but there are loads of ways in which you can help us out yeah i think we have a list yeah absolutely a shopping list you can like and share our stuff on social media Apparently doing a heart or laugh on Facebook registers more than a simple thumbs up. Oh, have you been on a course that's taught you that recently? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) You 
can grab someone's phone and sign them up. And you can, of course, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And if you've ever done any of these, then a million sincere thanks from both of us. Certainly. We'll be back with another mashup in a couple of weeks. See you then. Bye-bye. We are The Backstory Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at The Backstory Pod on Twitter. Search for The Backstory with Claire and Susie in your podcast directory. For sponsorship opportunities, or if you'd like to take part in a show, please contact hello at thebackstorypodcast.co.uk. The Backstory Podcast is produced by Tin Shared Productions. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.